want to, you know, look at the, the Christmas story. Uh, we're, we're kind of going around in circles and we're going to talk about the shepherds today and Mary next week. Um, and try and say, Lord, what do, you, what do you want to say to me this year about who you are and how do I learn from the story? Somebody said that the, that the whole of history swings on the hinges of the stable door. Because until Jesus was born, there was this whole, from Eden until Bethlehem, there was the fall and there was this relationship with God that was entirely dependent upon the Ten Commandments, upon the law, upon things that uh, we had to try and do to be acceptable to God. Or I'm just caricaturing it. But the whole of the Old Testament is about how we have to try and live in such a way that God will accept us and be pleased with us and God's given guidelines and it's just one massive failure and one massive frustration where this whole system of religion um, takes what God says and makes it into ritual and makes it into something to somehow please this deity who's up there somewhere. And our experience around here feels like he's actually forgotten about us. And yet we have to say, God is good and we praise you, but my life isn't so good and I don't know how to praise you. And that whole contradiction that, that, that sits in the Old Testament and then sits in the New Testament and with often, which is this, how do I praise a God when the world is so crazy? And I don't think it's changed since that first Christmas morning. And so either it's rubbish and we're just whistling in the dark or there's a truth to it that actually is profound. I think it's the latter. Whew. But if you know me, my passion is to try and... How, how does it work? Because I, like, I don't like superficiality and I don't like bumper stickers and I don't like, well, just praise God anywhere. I like to go, Lord, how does this work in a way that is real. So we're talking about the joy that uh, the angels declared to these shepherds. And even this Christmas story with all these little cameos of the shepherds and the wise men and the baby and all the rest of it, it's cute and it's sweet and then you go, so what? So what is, is a, there's a profound so what that's happening in that Bethlehem manger. And I'll tell you what it is. So then you can go to sleep after that and you know what I'm going to talk about. But what it is, is the Old Testament is this me trying to find God through what I do, my religious practice, my sacrifices. And the New Testament is God reaching out to me. And from the moment Jesus is born, God is actually saying, we're going to do this a different way from now on. And the, what we're going to do, and this is the secret to life, what we're going to do is all you have to do on earth is follow me. All you have to do, instead of trying to do things for me, I'm going to reveal myself to you and do things with me. So everything God asks us to do, he initiates. You're not with me yet, but you will. So if you, you're always wanting to say, what is God doing? Who is God? And then respond to that. That's, and, and in fact, you can see that with the, the shepherds. But before I say that, it just we're not talking about 
this may help you, but when we talk about joy, Jesus, the, the, the angels didn't say this. They didn't say, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great happiness for all people. In a fallen world, cursed and made vain at so many points, we are fundamentally unhappy and prone to long bouts with unhappiness. We are made happy by having stuff, getting gifts, or feeling like we belong in a group. In stark contrast, God is happy within himself. As Aquinas said, God is happiness by his essence, for he is happy not by acquisition or participation or of something else, but by his essence. Does you understand what that means? In other words, God is happiness. He is love. He is joy. So when God's presence is present, love and joy and peace are present because he is. Whereas our culture is, we, we, we swap out joy to happiness and then happiness is when my circumstances are alright or when my relationships are alright or when I get a nice present. It's all conditioned on things to make me happy. It's a seductive addiction. And that's why very often we don't spend very long happy because it becomes more and more, I need more and more things to keep me happy. You know, we do the cliche all the time, you know, if I got this, I'll be happy. If I did this, I'd get happy. If I got this job, I'll be happy. If I had this relationship, I'll be happy. If I didn't have this relationship, I'd be happy. If I had this car, I'd be happy. If I didn't have this car, I'd be happy. You fill in the blanks of all the things that you need in order for you to be happy. And then kind of go, how's it working? And what happens if God sort of says to us, I've come to set you free from the need to be happy? What happens if, you see, everything God gives has to be available to everyone. Everything about God and all that he gives has to be available to the person in Haiti as well as the person in Buckingham Palace. It's got to be accessible to everyone. And so God can say, here's joy. You can't buy it with money. You can't buy peace with money. You can't buy love with money. And so the radical nature of God in Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you how to live a life that can actually tap into all these things and you don't need to have any money to buy it because it's actually been paid for. <coughs> Remember that happiness is our response to our circumstances. We're happy when our circumstances please us, when things are going our way. We're happy when we feel blessed, when we feel loved, when we feel valued, when we have enough to eat and enough to drink. Happiness is our emotional reflection of positive circumstances and so happiness is of this world. Which doesn't mean happiness is a bad thing. It's just not the secret to life. And so we have the story of the shepherds. And they're outside Bethlehem and they have no expectation of anything extraordinary happening on the night that things extraordinary happen. It was just another, as Graham Cook might say, Wednesday evening. And they were, their job, they were the most outcast of society because they spent all their time looking after these lambs and these sheep and spent most of their time stinking of lambs and sheep. But they were preparing, ironically, the lambs and sheep outside Bethlehem probably for sacrifice so that they would be, go up to the temple and be sacrificed for the atonement of people's sins and all that stuff. 
part of the religious machinery. And uh, it's interesting that God sends his angels to shepherds as he is known as the great shepherd. And uh, they have no inkling of what is about to happen and God speaks to them through these angels. So the first thing to remember, God has taken initiative. God speaks first. God always makes the first move. He has made the first move. And he says to them, they're terrified. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said, Want another hot dog? What was that? What are we smoking tonight? That was a powerful trip. You know, often God stands on his head in front of us and we go, yeah, make it a little higher, bigger, deeper. And the, and the shepherds said, let's go and see if this is true. Whatever revelation you have of God, start pulling on that. See if it's true. Do something. The one way you'll never grow with God is to sit and try and reflect on angels singing on a hillside. What were the angels singing about? Why were they singing? And what did they tell you? Well, go and explore it and see if it's true. One of the ways you will actually make breakthrough in your Christian life is to take hold of something that you're either intrigued by or you would like to know more about and start pursuing it. One of the ways of getting nowhere is criticizing everybody around you who is trying to do something and then just asking God to do it without your participation. It won't work. Wise men, as Bill Johnson says, always are still traveling. Follow the scent. Follow something and see what happens. And so these shepherds uh, went off to Bethlehem to see what was what. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. Think about it. There was a revelation of God. They hadn't heard about God in, in Israel in for four, five hundred years. They'd been talking about the coming of the Messiah. They still thought the Messiah was going to release them from the from the Romans. And then there's this appearance of angels and these shepherds, squalid shepherds, go to this peasant girl who's pregnant and has a baby and, 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 and they kind of go, something amazing is happening. They don't, I don't think, really had much of a clue what was going on. It was just amazing and maybe God was doing something. <clears throat> maybe the only revelation they really had was God was still alive. God was doing something. There is a God. This God that we've been serving with these sacrificial lambs, this God who we've been kind of paying lip service to is actually real. Maybe that was enough. 
to create something in them that rose up and said, wow, maybe there's more than I thought. Because, I mean, if I'm one of those shepherds, I might say, look, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is a baby's born in Bethlehem. The bad news is you're going to be out of a job. Because when he starts speaking, he's going to be the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So your sheep are going to be for dinner tables, but they're not for sacrifice anymore. But that's still 30 years down the road. So the song on the side of the hillside outside Bethlehem lasts for 10 minutes and has to sustain them for 35 years, 30 years. It's, it's sobering, I think. Because we're into this instant gratification and God seems to kind of be dawdling along. And those shepherds like us are called upon to believe for what we don't yet see because even a minute taste of God should be enough to sustain us. The joy of the Lord is my strength came out of Nehemiah when they were rebuilding the city. Everything in the Bible you have these moments that are like nuggets, but they have to shine for years. The time spans are enormous. It's so easy for us to lose our faith because of what we don't yet see. Let's look at uh, another story that goes parallel, in a sense, with the Christmas story, which is uh, Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. They're in their 70s or 80s by now. Sometimes I think these portrayals just give us a very human touch to these amazing events that also encourage us to understand that in the very ordinary, God's extraordinary is so often unfolding. And for Zechariah and Elizabeth, they had prayed and waited and served faithfully for their whole lives and weren't expecting to get what they had asked for, which was a child. And then God breaks through and says, the reason you haven't had one until now is because your child is actually going to be the one who's going to stand up and prepare the way for Jesus, my son. There's so much more than we see or understand at times. And what we have the privilege of doing is we're living actually in a time where Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't know the nature of God like we do. And so what's so important about the revelation that God was giving through Jesus was he was revealing himself as one who loves in an extraordinary way. As a father loves a child. As a mother loves a child. And he's really actually saying, if you understand my love for you, you will be able to sustain life in all its positives and negatives because you will understand that I'm with you and I'm for you. In this world you will have trouble but I have overcome the world. In fact, if you take joy, when I was thinking about how could I say this and said, joy is Jesus overcomes and he always says yes. We try and land this for us. In, in, when Jesus grows up and he speaks to his disciples before he goes to the cross, he says to them in John, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. For just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love, 
I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So it sounds like he's saying that joy isn't just this abstraction thing. Joy is what comes with building relationship with Jesus who is joy. I mean, have you ever experienced people, you know, some people they walk in the room and the whole thing gets depressed. They carry depression or negativity. Others carry positiveness and, and are upbeat and when they walk in the room, that's energizing. What's in us tends to flow through us and out of us. Sometimes we wish it didn't. Sometimes we're glad it does. It depends what it is. And Jesus is all of that. So where Jesus is present, there is joy. But I, I want to say, you know, what kind of joy are we talking about? And how do you have joy? And I think for me, maybe the, the picture that came to mind was the prodigal son. Where the prodigal son had left his father's house and he had said, for me to have joy and life, I need to get out of here and be independent. And he goes out of his father's house. He takes his inheritance, which means he says to his dad, I wish you were dead so I could have the money you would leave me. And his dad said, all right, you can have the money. And his son goes off and he, he is God of his life and he destroys his life because he's paying for joy through women and wine and everything else. And eventually it all runs out. He has no more, nothing else to pay for the happiness he was looking for. And he comes to his senses, it says, when he's sort of feeding pigs and he's living an absolutely impoverished life and he turns around to come back to his father's house. And everything in him is ashamed and everything in him is broken because he has totally messed up his life. And he's discovered the hard way that his life on his terms and in his ways don't lead to life. They've just led to ruin. And so he turns to come back to his father's house and he's coming back struggling, broken, uh, unkempt, with no identity, ashamed. No joy, just despair. Despair because of his circumstances and because of his decisions and because of his whole lifestyle that had led to darkness and emptiness. There is no hope for him in his head and in his heart. And he starts making his way to his father's house and he comes, maybe there's a long driveway and this is how joy works. Because on the other side of that driveway, at the door of the house, which is heaven and which is God and which is wholeness, joy waits. And joy sees despair walking up. And joy looks at despair and says, that is my son, what's he wearing? He's wearing despair. And the revelation of God in Jesus is such that he says, now you're going to see how, who God really is. Because God, in the Old Testament, is about, you better have a whole lot of sacrifices coming up to, to make yourself worthy to be in front of me, and then you never know what I'm going to do to you. In fact, there are a lot of priests and religious people between you and me. And you're going to have to jump through all of their hoops to get to me. I was playing squash last night with a guy. He's, he always jokes with me about... Um, I mean, he had an amazing event happen. He's... He uh, it was in Parksville about two years ago, and he was he had this truck with ladders on it, and uh, he got he got off around French Creek. He got out to do something, and this car came and smacked him thirty feet into the bush and nearly killed him. 
and he's got some brain damage. Anyway, he always jokes with me and says, well, you can't, you know, uh, we, we've got to hurry up because I've got to go to Catholic Mass at 6.30 so I can be forgiven. And I said, you don't have to go to Catholic Mass to be forgiven. You can be forgiven. We joke about all this confessional stuff. Anyway, that was just this, you know, this whole sort of, all these religious rituals that we can have, but, and we do them. I bet you do them. They're things that you do to make yourself feel worthy. Even with Jesus. Aaron, don't do it anymore then. Um, you know, it's, it's just, so, so, so what does joy do? Joy is the father. The father sees despair his son and he runs to him. And the son despair wants to give him his whole sort of mea culpa, I am this and that. And the father says, I've already seen all that. I watched you walking. I mean, if body language speaks, you shouting. Despair. And joy runs with open arms and just envelops despair with acceptance. And despair doesn't have a chance to even speak. He just says, my son. And he says, put a cloak on him, put sandals on him, put a ring on him. I restore to him his identity. He is my son. Joy brings him back into who he was created to be. And he didn't do anything other than turn around and start coming back. That's the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is God so loved you that he sent his son to run down the highway, to take hold of you and say, when you have my embrace, you will know joy. You can't conjure it. Do you think, that, do you think the, old, the, the prodigal son then kind of went into the house looking like his older brother was outside the house? Nobody had to tell that prodigal son to be joyful. That prodigal son was joyful. Why? Because he got way more than he ever anticipated. He said, I thought I would just be your servant and be punished forever. And I thought I would be disinherited because I deserve it. I disinherited myself. I thought that there would be no room for me in this inn. And the father says, well, you see, son, I'm not like you. I have loved you from the moment you walked over the horizon. I have been jealous for you from the moment I saw your back disappear. I have longed for you to come back to me. It matters not to me what you have done. I know it's already messed you up, but all I want is you back with me. And Jesus said, if you keep my commands, you will know joy. The prodigal son this time said, Dad, what do you want me to do? Because once he had received that kind of love, there wasn't a command that came from the father that he wouldn't have said, sure. They weren't rules anymore. They were just relational love being worked out through guidelines. And Jesus said to his disciples, if you want to know joy, learn to keep my commands and understand that my commands come from a place of goodness and of wisdom and of truthfulness. Not just trying to make your life miserable. You can do that without me. You do misery really well. I don't do misery. But if you arm wrestle me all the time, you will be miserable. Because I can arm wrestle forever. And I never lose. 
Because I want you to learn how to yield to me so that we can have life together. And so afterwards, the older brother, because you remember in the story of the prodigal son, there's music and dancing in the house. There is joy. I'm going to talk on Christmas morning about Christmas trees. They only started 200 years ago. For the first 1,500 years of Christian history, they were probably they were miserable on Christmas Day. It was all religious misery. They didn't like Christmas trees because it was too joyful. Anyway, that come on Christmas morning for that one. God loves joy. Let me... Remember when the, the, the father went down to the older brother? Because the older brother was in his presence all the time, but he wasn't... It's, the older brother was at home with the father all the time, but still also didn't have joy. Because he was doing it according to rules. So it's quite possible to have a relationship with Jesus and do all the religious stuff and still be miserable. Because you're doing it from a place of duty or, or whatever it is. That's why our journey with God and with Jesus is one of growing revelation. And so one of the ways that you want to keep on testing your own spirit is how joyful am I? How, how peaceful am I? How loving am I? It doesn't matter what scriptures you quote. It's a hard question. Go to somebody you know and say, so when you're in my presence, how do you experience joy? I'm not answering that one. When you're in my presence, how do you, how do you experience peace? When you're in my presence, how do you experience hope? When you're in my presence, how do you experience encouragement? When you're in my presence, how do you experience truthfulness? How do you experience mercy? How do you experience generosity? That should keep all of us humble for the rest of our lives. Because what we're saying is that's what I'm aiming for. Jesus, will you actually reflect yourself in me more and more? And so everything that wants to steal those things from me is what I want to work on. So this is the image of joy I want to leave with you. Not just the, the fact that the Father's love overwhelms everything that steals joy. And so the key to finding joy is just finding Jesus, finding the Father. Letting him love you. Because he is standing on a hillside today with angels screaming your name out, saying, good news, a great joy. Here I am. Don't be afraid. Come. But I don't understand. We're not even working on that level. We have to wait till you're understanding. That's why babies are born and you don't understand. Think of joy as like underground water. Think of it as, as, as a big lake underground and like an artesian well. And when you give your heart and life to Jesus, you, t you begin to tap into that existence. of you, there, is, there is a depth to life that you didn't see before. In Cape Town right now, where my daughters have just gone for Christmas, they have the second year of a drought. And my friend Simon said to me, oh, in their apartment building, they've just actually bored down X amount of feet to get water because they ha the, the reservoirs are incredibly low. And they, it's very serious. Remember in Israel, 
um, driving down from Jerusalem and stopping by the side of the road and there were some goat herders and we walked out into this very rocky uh, scrub landscape and there's a, a big rock um, that's moved aside and you look down there's this whole system, this fresh crystal clear water. Think of joy as being subterranean, under the ground. And what God says is, you will never be without water if you just drill down to where it is. No matter what your circumstances are, water is available. How do you drill down into the joy of the Lord, into the peace of the Lord? All of these things are like this. Your circumstances might not be happy. Your circumstances might be really challenging. And if we actually look at Zechariah and Elizabeth and we look at Mary next week, all of these people who were touched by God and engaged by God also had this enormous script that wasn't fun. And by the way, this one who you're giving birth to is going to have his head cut off because a little dancing girl said, Daddy, I want his head on a plate. Mummy told me to ask you. And you go, meaningless? That's God's will? Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. They plugged into something much deeper. And unless we plug into something much deeper, we will be thrown around every time something bad happens. And if you want to see people coming into the Christian faith, start demonstrating peace, love and joy in the midst of crises. Show them a different way to live, a different way to be. Not because you're happy, because happiness is very, very superficial. Joy is about going, you know, at the end of the day, I'm going to, how do you bore down into the water? It's through worship. You stand there and you begin to say, God, you are good. Jesus, you are the revelation of God's goodness. I love you because you loved me. Start declaring over your life the truths that you might not even feel and you'll start boring down. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you have embraced me and the Father has embraced me. Thank you that you ran down the, wa- that you ran down the lane and you hold me in your arms and you have put a ring on my finger. You have put a cloak on my shoulders. You have put sandals and you have reinstated me. I am your much-loved son. Thank you that there is nothing that can separate me from your love because of what you have done on the cross. I'm speaking that out and I'm boring down. Thank you that you have overcome evil. Thank you that nothing can take my joy away. Thank you that your joy is here to be found and I'm going to go for it. And you worship and you watch what happens. God begins to release peace and love and joy as you hit that artesian well. And some days you'll stand there and you hardly have to press your finger into the ground and it just bubbles up. You go, oh, this is easy, lovely, lovely, hallelujah. Other times... You've got to declare it. But it's always there. That's the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is deep. The joy of the Lord sustains because of what Jesus did. And that's what we are coming to discover and learn together. Not happiness. And it's all in response. So let's stand and ask God to release and help us be released into more of His joy.